with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 205th program of Think Again, a program of Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change for over 25 years. We'd like to thank 3CR for making this program possible and we acknowledge the true custodians of the land that 3CR broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respects to their elders past and present. I'm Jennifer Burrell, your host today. Jacques is having a week off, but I feel privileged and honoured to be joined by author and community supporter and leader Om Dungel. Welcome to the program, Om. Good morning, Jennifer. Lovely to have you join us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks (laughs) for joining us. Yeah, Uh, thank you for having me on the show and really appreciate the invitation. And to start with, I'd like to let the listeners know that I'm dialing from Fairwater in Blacktown in Western Sydney and acknowledge the Daruk people, the traditional custodians of the land that I'm dialing from and pay my respects to the elders past and present. Thank you, Jennifer. Mm. So to introduce you to the listeners, um, I met uh, you at a recent conference in Darwin on Larrakia country, and that was the World Community Development Conference, which Jacques and I talked about last week. So Om was talking about his book, Bhutan to Blacktown, and a, a long, I think a long refugee story from Bhutan to Australia told, re- recounted in that book, and that was written with James Button. So firstly, Om, can you tell us a bit about your life growing up in Bhutan? Uh, what was life like? Uh, how did you and people around you live? Uh, thank, thank you, Jennifer. Uh, just quickly on the World Community Development Conference, and I listened to the podcast last week, and Jennifer, you have summarized that so well, and I oh. missed a few sessions, but you have given us a great summary of the World Community Development Conference. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps when I start talking about Bhutan, a lot of times I have to tell where Bhutan is in the first place, so... Uh, yeah, for listeners who are not aware of Bhutan, it's a very small kingdom between China and India. It comprises of uh, three major ethnic groups. You know, in the West is people from Tibetan origin, where the king and the royal family belong to, and in the East is uh, more Tibeto-Burmese origin people called, you know, Eastern Eastern Bhutanese, or in in our language, it's a uh, in Buddhist language, it's a uh, Sachop. And in the south, we are southern Bhutanese, traditionally from ethnic Nepali background. Uh, I grew up in Lamidara, a very remote village in southern Bhutan, uh, where we didn't have any roads, no electricity, no telephones, of course. And uh, we had to walk about 15, 20 minutes to fetch water on our backs. So this is uh, in a typical village in Bhutan. I grew up in that environment. Went to a local boarding school, a local school, primary school, where you know uh, I could go up to year five, and then I went to a 
neighboring district uh, to pursue my studies from year six. And then another three years there, I had to move to another, you know, school in high school in Paro in Western Bhutan to my to do my nine and ten. And then Bhutan had only one school which offered eleven and twelve, so I had to move to uh, Kangmung in Eastern Bhutan to complete my year twelve. After that, you know, I got a Bangladesh government scholarship to study engineering in the prestigious University of Bangladesh University of Engineering and Technology. I stayed there for, you know, I completed my studies and then came back to Bhutan and joined the government of Bhutan. I had a number of choices uh, because we had, I was the third, you know, most, you know, most in a telecom engineer in the country then. So uh, I joined the Department of Telecommunication, which had a very rudimentary telecommunication network um, with a total of about 2,000 lines for the whole country. Mm-hmm. And uh, given it had a lot of challenges, I thought I could do something for this. So, you know, department, so I joined the Department of Telecommunications. And then, uh, you know, uh, I worked there, you know, managed the uh, Capital Cities Telecom Network. Again, when we say Capital Cities Network, we had about 1,200 lines and half of them would work at a mm-hmm. given point in time. And we, together with other colleagues, uh, um, you know, we started building the, you know, country's telecommunication network. And uh, in a, within a very short period of time, by 1992, uh, we had one of the most modern telecommunication mm-hmm. networks in the country. And uh, we could, for the first time in the history of Bhutan, on 29th of March 1990, we could pick up the phone and make a call to Australia yeah. or any other country in the world. So, yes, it was beautiful, you know, like uh, professionally and personally, life was beautiful. Yeah, and and even at that point, you felt you were committed to making a contribution to your country, uh, Bhutan, and you saw the need there, and that's where you chose to put your skills and education, setting up, a, helping set up the telecommun or leading setting up the telecommunications network. So, so you had a high up, obviously a high up position. Life was good, um, but then suddenly things changed. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, but I might. Start with life was good. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was indeed beautiful for a you know young you know person like in my like you know to rise up the ladder and you know like uh, I you know like travel uh, you know at least three four times a, a year go overseas to represent the country doing different trainings and seminars and conferences and um, personally again I was married. Uh, we had, uh, you know, a little beautiful daughter, and you know, my parents had a beautiful sort of, you know, a business, and they were doing very well as well. So everything was going really well, mm. uh, personally, professionally. But during this time, government had a different agenda that we didn't know. So, you know, government, during the late '80s, uh, government started introducing a number of discriminatory policies aimed against the southern Bhutanese of Nepalese origin. Mm. And this started with, you know, a dress code, for example, like, you know, uh, it was implemented across the country, but it impacted the southern Bhutanese most because the climate in the south is generally not uh, uh, cold-like in the north. And the dress, natural dress is suited to more cold uh, environment. And uh, people had to overnight, you know, uh, adopt a dress code where we had to wear a go for women and kira for 
uh, sorry, go for men and speed up for women. And that wasn't a big issue, but it created a lot of inconvenience for elderly people. Say, for example, my grandmother in the, in a, in the 70s, like, you know, she had to overnight start wearing a dress that she hadn't worn, you know, all her life. So mm-hmm. that was one irritant. But the other one was if the government teach Nepali language up to year five, and that was stopped. But not only stopped, you know, soldiers came and, you know, took out the book and burned in front of, you know, mm. people. So, it really so the, the sentiment, yeah. So the oppressive and, measures, they started off small, but mm, they escalated over time. Escalated and you were still time. holding out for that it might all be okay. And then it yes. got pretty serious, didn't it? Mm. And then the other one was Greenbelt, for example, like, you know, people living uh, along the border with India, like, you know, five kilometres along the border. They were told to, you know, overnight, you know, dis- demolish the house and mm. move somewhere. Yeah. And how could you do that? And finally, the final sort of straw was uh, like, you know, uh, uh, the census, you know, government carried out, you know, census in southern Bhutan only. And to prove that you are a citizen, you had to produce a tax receipt that you paid back in 1958. Mm. If you had one for 1948, it didn't work, or 52, it didn't work, you had to produce that particular year. If you couldn't produce that, you are a non-citizen. So government also put people in different categories of citizens and it created a lot of angst and you know fear among people and when this happened one after another people couldn't take it anymore and there was a, a mass protest in early in the 1990s and when that happened government came out all out and said how dare you protest and you know started putting people uh, arbitrarily arresting people torturing them mm. and Outright, it led to outright eviction of people. Mm-hmm. And in that process, my own father, elderly father, was, you know, arbitrarily arrested, put in prison, and tortured so badly. And he carried this scars until he passed away, you know, a few years ago here. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was a, a, a very tragic situation from where we were, you know, a few years earlier. So I'm not just read a paragraph from a book, you know, very quickly. Thank you. Beautifully. So. One morning in April 1992, I got into our car, left my wife and daughter, and fled my beloved Bhutan. I became a refugee. I was not the most oppressed. Others had it much worse than me. Yet I was forced to make agonizing decisions. Who would abandon his wife and child? I lived in a state of confusion, guilt, and self-doubt. Having to clear my way along the dark path, it was a life I believed should be possible, but had no map to find. I lost my position, my salary, my status, my career, and my country. Mm. And in that fall, I gained everything. Which I... Yeah, so you had to leave the country and leave everything, and that was your identity, your way of life, your connections with other people, your status, your job, and go to nothing. And I think that's um, that last... Thing, sentence you read out and in that fall I gained everything that's really the theme of the book so it's 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 quite a journey so um, I know you have so much to say I'm really worried that we're going to, I think we're going to have to have you on again after today but but I wanted Thank to you. ask you so then then you fled the country I think first you you went there were a lot of um, southern Nepali uh, sorry southern Bhutanese people um, living in um, ended up in refugee camps in Nepal and um, so can you just tell a bit about what hap- what happened 
when you first left the country. I know it's really hard to say quickly, and people will have to buy the book to find out the details. <laughs> but so, what? Where did you end up, and um, and how did you end up in in Nepal and then Australia? I guess. Uh, we uh, generally, when people fled Bhutan, they cross across to India. But uh, Indian government, you know, like uh, was conniving with the Bhutanese government and you know sending back, forcing back people, and you know letting Bhutan torture them. So it wasn't safe to live in India anymore. And, you know, people who crossed to India and later on Indian government, you know, facilitated the transfer of people from India to Nepal. So uh, since it wasn't safe to live in India, I actually crossed the border into India. I spent four days waiting for four long, 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 long days waiting for my wife and my daughter to join me. And those are the longest wait I had. I wasn't sure whether they would be able to join me. But fortunately, we were reunited and then went to Nepal. And I spent, you know, six years there volunteering to sort of set up, you know, help set up camps and, you know, uh, support education of children and, you know, lobby uh, the government of Bhutan to try to lobby international community to try and put pressure on Bhutan to take us back into Bhutan. So Mm. when we became refugees, we thought we lost everything. But very quickly we realized that we hadn't really lost the capacity to care and, you know, love for each other. And that's how we survived. And later on we thrived as well because teachers, you know, like who have fled the country, they started, you know, uh, setting up schools under trees. There were health professionals who started caring for elderly and children. And that's where all my, you know, strength-based approach comes from, the learnings from, you know, what we did in the camp looking after each other based on our strengths and assets that we had within the community. Mm. And, uh, yeah, spent that six years, you know, I was also, you know, co-editing a newspaper to, you know, uh, let the world know what was going on in Bhutan. Mm. And finally got Bhutan and Nepal to, you know, start talking, but Bhutan's agenda was different. Again, it was just adopting a delayed attitude. It wasn't really interested in, you know, uh, you know, uh, resolving this problem or taking back any people in the camp. So mm-hmm. uh, people spend between 15 to 20 years in refugee camp. And finally, again, for me personally, uh, after five years, I was a little crazy. I wanted to do my, you know, MBA uh, and happened to manage to come here to Australia mm-hmm. with the support of my brother, you know, who is a you know, veterinary doctor. Doctor, We happen to have the same name, Dr. Om Daniel. So mm-hmm. he supported me to come to Australia, you know, after six years of mm-hmm. my life in refugee, uh, as a refugee in Nepal. So, uh, so on before, before going to that, yeah. I'll just remind people who have just tuned in that um, they're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM. On, on your dial, 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Om Dungel about his story as written in his book, Bhutan to Blacktown, Leaving Everything and Finding Australia. And it's a really great story of refugee survival and flourishing that Om's telling us about. And Om's been telling us about his journey from Bhutan to Nepal and I think you're just about to tell us about how you ended up in Australia. So could you please continue <laughs> on? Yes, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, so uh, when we were in Nepal, like, we had a single objective of going back to Bhutan, but that wasn't happening. So we have to start thinking, you know, what, what else, what next? Because personally, I had a response to my, you know, little daughter and my wife and my elderly parents. So I started thinking about that and then... Uh, 
I, as I said, I was a little crazy to, you know, think of doing an MBA as a refugee and uh, with the support of uh, my friends and families and everyone. And as I said, like my own, uh, you know, I call him my brother, but technically my cousin, Dr. Om Dumel, who was already here uh, doing his master's in uh, Sydney Uni. So he supported me and I was able to come and do my MBA at UTS. Mm. And again, once again, I was away from my family and I was going through a lot of angst and, you know, uh, I wasn't sure whether I was doing the right thing and, you know, I went through a pretty pretty hard time and I once even, you know, fell down and almost killed myself, you know, due to this anxiety. Yeah, and on, on a road, I think, as you tell it. So I think that's the interesting thing is about your story, Om, is it can sound, if you just hear the good side and talking back from how it's turned out it can sound very Pollyanna like oh everyone yeah. should just love each other and care and look on the bright side but you you've been through some quite d- very dark times and I think oh, you yeah. talked about you didn't sleep for a few nights because and oh, I've heard yeah. this from other <laughs> asylum seekers you're you're feeling guilty you're in Australia you're doing MBA you've left your family for a few yeah, years yeah. I think and so mm-hmm. you're saying well I'm here but they're over there and you're not complete either because your family's not here no. Yeah, and every time I like, I, I wouldn't really miss anything uh, that happened in my in my daughter's school. But every time there was major event, there was a you know drama or something happening, and Sriti was so keen that you know, Papa is around to you know watch me, watch her you know play, mm-hmm. and I'm not there, and she's totally confused. She's wondering why isn't Papa here when you know such big things are happening in her life. You know, as a you know, eight year old, like you know, she couldn't really comprehend that, and mm. that really hurt me a lot. And I think, and then the next thing is my parents are in the refugee camp, you know, struggling. So for me, like you know, for five nights, I just really couldn't go to sleep. And on the other hand, like I was struggling to pay my tuition fees. So it, it was at one day I remember, like you know, I was really hungry. You know, would I spend the money to you know? buy the $2 food or would I have to add that on to, you know, pay my tuition fees? So mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't easy. I know there are, you know, difficult times, but every time I started after that fall on the street, like I realized, you know, if I had died, nobody would be, you know, proud of me, you know, yes. um, neither my daughter nor my parents nor my wife. So I thought, why should I, I should really focus on things that I have control of and that, you know, I can do rather than, lot of things that's beyond my control and I really couldn't do anything you know about bringing my family overnight because mm-hmm. you know I you know I wasn't even a public resident here so I really had to focus on things that I had control of rather mm-hmm. than you know worrying about things that I couldn't do anything yeah. about so that was a changing moment for me. I think uh, that has really shaped my life. Mm. And eventually, <clears throat> excuse me. And eventually, I know that um, your wife was knocked back for a visa quite a few times. But eventually, they came here, um, and you settled on Blacktown, which from Melbourne we don't know a lot about Blacktown, probably. But um, it's yeah. um, a, an outer suburb that's got had a bad reputation um, for being dangerous and lots of different cultural backgrounds. But you actually talk to people in, when choosing a place. You talk to people in the community and. And all those bad stories were coming from people who just didn't really live there. So maybe because um, time is running out, I'm just really, I think our listeners would really like to hear about how um, gradually like a string of pearls that, you know, a whole community um, came to settle in Bhutan, um, I think largely led from you and, and others. Can you tell a bit about 
Um, I, I guess your community building focus, that community development focus, which of course is why you were present, um, launching your book at the conference too, yeah. uh, that community, that building community um, rather than focusing on um, individual, necessarily individual fulfilment, the, the community working yeah. together and caring and loving for each other and, and, and how you built resilience. So can you talk a bit about building up the community in Blacktown? Yeah, I think for listeners in Melbourne, I just came back from Melbourne last, you know, last last week I was there. Yes, and I met uh, Footscray is uh, is very equivalent to Blacktown in Western Sydney. Mm-hmm. So I was in in a bookstore in Footscray, and a gentleman walked in and he had a jacket uh, on which at the back he had written, "I love Footscray," mm-hmm. and. I was talking to. I started having a conversation with the book owner and bookshop owner and the person, and he was uh, such a model of community builder. Like he, he was trying to bring the community together and look at how we can look after each other during hard times, during good times. And I have to talk to him for a while. So these are gems in the community. But how do we support them and nurture them to do more of what they want to do? It's not about you know, uh, what I found is, you know, Blacktown, for example, I chose Blacktown because I've heard quite a few things about Blacktown, but also Blacktown is a community of, you know, 400,000 people, like it's a local government area, it's one of the largest. Mm-hmm. And we've got people from 188 different countries, and we speak 182 languages. And we also are host to the largest urban, you know, indigenous population in the country. So we are very rich culturally, socially, mm. in every way. Very and rich, you said. Of, a lot of people don't look at the richness of this community. Rather, mm. they look at what's wrong. And when we start looking what's wrong, we can find a lot of wrongs, a lot of problems. Mm. And we can be totally overwhelmed with problems. You know, I've been hearing about, you know, I've been in the community sector, very involved for the last 20 years, 20 years here in Blacktown. Mm. And we come up with the same set of problems and issues and continue to magnify them. But if you start looking at the strengths and assets within a community, I found that we can address those problems in a much better way. So, you know, when you ask somebody, you know, what do you need, you know, people are not excited. But if I talk to you, hey, Jennifer, what do you love doing? Mm. And your eyes open up and you start kind of thing. So I think that's something I found in fundamentally, you know, the differentiator between, you know, where we move towards, like, you know, whether we are talking about all the problems and sort of overwhelmed with the problem, or what do we aspire and can we work towards what we are aspiring? Mm, yeah, and I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than seeing the, as you say, the deficits, like what needs to be fixed, you know, what do you need yeah. help with? Not start, yeah. not, and that, and help for people and support will yeah. be necessary, but you don't start from that point. You say, what excites you? What are you good at? What do you like doing? Yeah. And people yeah. want to contribute. And I think that story really comes really strongly through in your book that people want yeah. to make a contribute. It makes their lives meaningful. And, yeah. um, and I guess the other thing um, I find interesting about this is just, You've got a community that's um, even just having that geographical um, people geographically going to the same place that enables community members to support and help each other. You're you're yeah. in, you can walk or take a short public transport, I guess, to or yeah. to each other's houses. Yeah, and I think that to start with as a 
Blacktown residents here, as first as Blacktown residents, uh, is really important to have that common identity, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. like a common a commonality, rather than saying that I'm from so-and-so country, so-and-so religion, or so-and-so background. Rather, we start on a common platform of we are Blacktown residents first. Mm-hmm. And then whatever differences that diversity we bring, we add to the, on top of it, to add to the richness, not the other way around. Mm. I so think, for I us, think, I think as an Australian, as a community, I think we really start thinking of what does, you know, the multiculturalism mean for us and how do we make that happen and flourish? And I think uh, the identity politics can sometimes lead to the wrong direction. So I think uh, the way I see this is, you know, like I've been <laughs> campaigning uh, to sort of call ourselves as, you know, fair water residents or black term residents first. And then, you know, whatever differences we bring, diversity we bring, add, to the top, add, on, add on top and add to the business rather than other way around. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, one of the great inspirations of your book too because it's understandable if people have been oppressed in their own country, forced to flee their own country, had their mm-hmm. cultural identity under threat, to then go and yes. hyper try to really elevate that in a hyper yes. way that um, yes. while inadvertently creating divisions with other communities. But you, even while your cultural background and that of other people in the community has been a great strength, it doesn't stop you connecting with people from other cultural backgrounds. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I think we we consciously took this 50-50 approach within the Buddhist community. We said, okay, these are the, you know, uh, uh, 50% of things we'll do from within our community to keep our culture, tradition, etc. But the other 50% will do will be involved with, you know, the you know, seniors week or international women's day celebration and be part of the wider community so that we integrate well as well. So while we retain our culture and the language, et cetera, which is really important, but that should not be a differentiator rather than that should be a glue to bring us all together. Oh, thank you so much, Om. I think we're going to have to end it on that great note, um, but I would <laughs> definitely love to have you back again about talking about your community work and the work of other people in Blacktown. So thanks so much for joining us on Think Again today and sharing your really inspirational story, and especially as you're speaking from an experience where you have had really dark times, and I think I've heard you express it as you've you, you died once or you experienced a death <laughs> once in, in losing your whole Twice, own <laughs> life. Yeah, yes, and you don't want to do it again. So that's yes. that it, it, you especially have a lot of authority talking about all, all of this. Yeah, and finally, gentle like, thank you so much for having me. And what I found is we cannot control what happens to us in life, but we can always choose to respond the way we want. So mm. thank, thank you very much for having me on. Mm. Real pleasure. So Thanks. the name of the book is Bhutan to Blacktown, Losing Everything and Finding Australia. And the book is by Om Dungel, D-H-U-N-G-E-L, with James Button. And I'd like, um, as for our radiothon, as Jacques said last week, um, our particular show reached our target. I think, um, think um, 3CR is still asking for some more donations to make its target. So we'd like to thank Alexi, Chris Daly, Chris Watson, Elias Dia Calabrianos, John Kent, Joseph Malignaghi, sorry about my pronunciation there, John, but very appreciative, Judy Ryan, Leanne McLean, Lynn Puglisi, Marcus Peck, Mary Gubala and Susan Sharp. And I'd also like to remind people we're in NADOC week. 
uh, celebrating the rich history, culture and achievements of ATSIC people. There is a NADOC march today, starting about now, <laughs> but actually the official march, I think, starts at 12pm. It's from Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, or VAS, at 186 Nicholson Street, Fitzroy. And there's a gathering before, but I think the actual march starts at 12. And there's also Yalanguth Live Fitzroy Tour on Saturday, July the 8th. Uh, 2.30 to 4.30, Yalanguth invites you to celebrate NADOC Week by immersing yourself in diverse and powerful stories of elders. Now, um, all of that is on the NADOC website, N-A-I-D-O-C, and if you're one of the people who aren't digitally connected, don't have a computer or iPhone, go to your local library. The librarian will help you. So you can find more events at www.nadoc.org.au. Thanks to our listeners for tuning today into Think Again Live on 3CR Community Radio. If you want to contact us, please email borderlands at borders at borderlands.org.au. Just put Think Again in the subject line. Our programs are available by podcast and on the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile... Very briefly, please hear Milkumana by King Stingray. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.